Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, as my pretty bride likes me to say, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room. So, Ravinder, share your secrets with us. My secrets? You have to come into the chat room to learn my secrets, but we do have the best chat room out there. It's a great conversation. It's fun. It adds a whole new dimension to the radio show. And I've made some really good friends through the chat room too. So that's really cool. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay. Now, you know, we have a lot of listeners that are maybe they're driving in their automobile or they're somewhere where they cannot log on right this minute. Uh, Your chat room stays up. People can come back because you often post links there. We very often have a video featuring our guest or some relative uh, piece of information about the show. So how do they how do they do that? You you can go back up. You know uh, we have the archives for all of the shows, so you can pretty much go back to a previous show and you will see the full chat log there. You can um, enter it right then. And then, as you said, we do often post additional URLs, other information, answer, answers to questions and stuff right in there. So, so if they go to provocativeenlightenment.com, click the archives, uh-huh. choose the show, yep. there will be the chat log. That's it. All right. In this week's spotlight, I would like to take a moment to reflect on the nature of truth. We hear a lot today about the idea that truth is personal. Statements like, I have my own truth. This is an interesting idea that essentially might argue for cultural relativity, something I have railed against many times on this show. Still, we all do have our so-called personal truths. For example, I have personally spent years studying, researching, and otherwise investigating the entire nature of religion and spirituality. That said, there is no solid scientific evidence that proves religion or spirituality is anything more than a brain-produced phenomena. Indeed, science clearly shows us that the brain is wired for religious experience, and it is very hard to argue against the evolutionary psychologists who insist that the plethora of religious experience exists as a matter of evolutionary expediency designed to deal with the inevitability of death. In other words, isn't it comforting to believe that there is more to our lives than just death? Now comes the personal truth aspect, where intellectually I can see the value to religion and spirituality in many instances, at least from a purely pragmatic standpoint, I can only use subjective experiences to support my conclusion that there is much more to life than the old notion that you only go around once. 
I think most of us have had experiences that denied explanation via our standard models of science. I've had many. Indeed, I've written about this in my book, What Does That Mean? And I did so not so much to share my own experience, but to draw out yours and highlight their importance. Most of us have had many experiences that cannot easily be cataloged in some rote explanation. But for some reason, we tend to forget them if we ever really notice their importance to begin with. It is the anomalies, then, that persist as the best evidence for an afterlife. It was William James who pointed out that it only takes one white crow to prove that all crows are not black. Indeed, for James, his pragmatic theory of truth was a synthesis of correspondence theory of truth and coherence theory of truth with an added dimension. Truth is verifiable to the extent that thoughts and statements correspond with actual things, as well as the extent to which they hang together or cohere as pieces of a puzzle might fit together. These are in turn verified by the observed results of the application of an idea to actual practice. This week I enjoyed a conversation with my friend Richard. We discussed this idea at length. Bottom line, when you're all said and done with the science of it all, you are still left with a couple of anomalies. If consciousness is only an emergent property of the brain, then how do we explain mind operating at a distance? Further, although disputed among many physicists, the whole matter of consciousness participating in the uncertainty principle is still not really sorted out. Added to this are the abundance of subjective reports, many of which have been independently verified. And remember that verifiability is the crucible of science. It is this abundance of subjective reports that gives rise to the anomalies that leave us with too many white crows to accept the view of scientism. For me, spirituality is a bit like the meaning behind Israelite one who wrestles with God. Life is our opportunity to learn more about who we are and how we relate to it all. Spirituality, then, is a practice of inquiry, continual inquiry. Certain truths, then, seem to have their personal side. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, this is uh, stuff that you and I do talk about quite a lot. You and I have certainly railed against cultural relativity, um, you know, in our search for for a truth that holds across the board. And, and be, just because it's difficult doesn't mean that you want to quit. Um, I also, you know, your book, What Does That Mean?, is absolutely fascinating. You do share lots of your own stories in, in there. But we've had so many people come up to us, you know, as a result of reading that book and tell us about their stories. And I've had, you know, very much the same experience think your conclusion to that book was something about you have to live into yourself and you were giving your storyline and I you know I found it most helpful for me because I have now created my own storyline and I get stuff figured out but you see that through some of these unexplainable experiences that we have and we all have them and what I find really fascinating is 
how often we forget them. I mean, I've actually started writing them down and I have to go look at my list in order to remember them. It's as though there is a second veil right there. You know, people talk about the veil when you, you know, are born into this life. Well, I think there is a veil there that forces you to forget some of the most fantastic experiences that we have. And as I said, I have to go back and read them all the time. But yeah, that is the most interesting stuff out there and it's something that we have to carry on working at in order to find the absolute truth not just the truth that is easy and convenient and makes us feel good well it will hold on to the idea that there is an absolute truth and we'll continue to pursue it recognizing that it may be like the onion and we're in search of the core Maybe that's what life is about. It's about the I journey. It it's absolutely about the journey, and you grow a little bit more all the time, but you can only grow if you carry on searching, not if you grab hold of the first thing that's comfortable and pretty and go with that. Totally agree. Okay, every week I read some of your letters. It's our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole, and we discussed her work and book, Dangerous Instincts. Alan wrote, what a lovely person Dr. O'Toole seemed to be, how she can sound so sweet and deal with the kind of people she has worked with, puzzles me. Richard wrote, great show, I would have loved to have heard more. Beth wrote, great show, fascinating info. Lillian wrote, I hate the thought that there are so many murderers and serial killers. I read recently that murders are on the rise. It's good to catch them, but what are we doing to prevent it? Amanda wrote, I love your shows and you cover so many really important subjects. Thank you for doing your show. I am a longtime fan. Moving on, Augustine wrote, your subliminals are the best. I like that. Lisa wrote, I've been using the Intertalk CDs for several years now and I gave Quantum Younging to my mother. Also, I play my copy of the CD whenever she and I go anywhere in the car. She is healthy and vital. And then I used Enhancing Romance and Intimacy around my daughter and her boyfriend. Whenever they are home or in the house, they live with me, and now they are engaged and getting married. you got to love that one, too, don't you? I do love that okay. one. And Grant wrote, I used Delden's free cancer remission intertalk subliminal for my wife's cancer as well as a strict vegan diet. Five years later with no chemo, my wife is doing fine. I bought other intertalk subliminals. They work great. I want to personally thank Eldon for his work. I heartily endorse his work. Well worth trying. Thanks for helping save my wife's life. Well, thanks for your feedback, Grant. We celebrate with you your wife's remission, and that program is free, and you can get it on my website at intertalk.com. Indeed, we carried out a pilot study a few years ago, and it was amazing the number of remissions where patients were where patients and their physicians believed that the mind had a role in wellness. It was amazing. Would you say so? I would. You know, we have over the years, we've had a number of those stories. It's the best. <laughs> if you know someone that has cancer, get the program. It's uh... All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Psychology and the Near-Death Experience. We've entertained many theories about NDEs on this show. Are they simply brain events or doorways into the future? 
Do they occur as a result of our psychological need to deal with death? Or is there a heaven and a hell? We have heard how the evolutionary psychologists explain our need to believe as arising from the inevitability of death. We have also heard many, including Dr. Raymond Moody, march story after story before us, some with incredible power and a few even with the evidence of at least the out-of-body experience or OBE. There are those who insist that NDEs are deceptions, and even Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who admitted that evil certainly exists, denied that the evil could be so evil as to trick us with an NDE for the purpose of leading us away from the biblical God. Well, there have also been those who have just made the stories up or have exaggerated their findings, and we have discussed that on this show. Today, we have a correctional psychologist to discuss the mental, emotional, and transformative aspect of the NDE. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Royal Hill has a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. He has worked as a psychologist in corrections, both as a clinician and supervisor, for over 20 years. Following several life-changing experiences, Roy delved into the topic of near-death experiences. A book followed his immersion, Psychology and Near-Death Experiences, Searching for God, published by White Crow Books and the subject of today's show. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Roy Hill. Thank you very much, Alvin. It's a joy to be here with you here today. That's great. In your book, you share your own spiritual quickening, if I can refer to it that way. Not an NDE, but something that gave rise to a new spiritual awareness, something you refer to as a personal revelation. So begin with, you know, share your story. Uh, yes. Um, I come from a very scientific background, although with a, also a Baptist religious background as well. And I was working at an institution, um, correctional institution in North Carolina. I had an inmate whose sister had passed away, and he was very vulnerable. And in talking with him, I decided to need to put him on suicide watch. After a few days, uh, he became mysteriously better all of a sudden. I asked him why. He said, well, my sister is talking with me. And she's telling me that I need to be open to her helping me and that I don't need to be on suicide watch and that she is with me at this time. And I thought to myself, wow, that doesn't sound like mental illness to me because voices are never helpful. They're always negative and cryptic. Because his mental status looked better, I put him on the unit to be watched by the officers and saw him in the next morning. And I asked him, well, is your sister still talking with you? And he said, yes. And I said, well, what is she telling you? He said, well, she's telling me you don't believe me. Mm -hmm. And so you shall believe she has a message for you. And coming from my materialistic background, I thought this was very strange. Yet I had goosebumps on my arms, thinking this is also rather weird and, and mysterious. So I asked him, well, what is her message to you? And he said, quarter. I was confused. I said, quarter what? Quarter a coin? Quarter something full? 
And he said, quarter of the coin. He says, what does that mean? He says, well, she won't tell me. So the next inmate I saw was a white Muslim. He was ranting about the hypocrisy of the United States, and I was half listening to him when he says, Dr. Hill, do you know what's written on a quarter? And I said, in God we trust, automatically. He said, that's right. And then I realized that this was referring to what was said earlier. And nobody had asked me that question before or since. So the synchronicity of this was incredible. So I brought the other guy in and said, did your sister say anything else to you? And he said, yes. He says, your wife is pregnant. You're going to have a son. He'll be born on Christmas Day. Mm -hmm. Rather specific. And uh, I knew the first to be true, but maybe he overheard a staff member say it. So I was a little bit skeptical. And turns out my son was born in January 7th. So go forward 11 years. I'm working at an institution in Colorado, and it's really bothering me. I thought to myself, how can the first be so true and the last not be true? And I had epiphany. First was a declaration I didn't have faith. Then there was a declaration that I needed to trust in God. Maybe this is a test of faith. So on a leap of faith, I Googled Christmas Day in January 7th. So lo and behold, a lot of stuff came up. And it turns out that we're using the Roman calendar, the Julian calendar. But Christendom used to use the Gregorian calendar, the Christian calendar. And according to the Gregorian calendar, which is used by all Orthodox Christians today, half a billion Christians, is January the 7th. So that could not be coincidence. I okay. talked to my Christian, yes. No, go ahead. I don't want to cut your story off at all. Go ahead. Well, just, just to end real quick, um, that I talked to my Christian friends, and they said this is of the devil. I knew it wasn't of the devil. Uh, so I knew about near-death experiences that touched upon these things. And that got me into a deep understanding of near-death experiences where I read thousands of them and interviewed people, and hence my book. The skeptic might ask, um, he was told it born on Christmas Day, um, his sister, you know, um, she would have practiced Christmas on Christmas Day, December 25th. Uh, she was a contemporary. She passes over. This would suggest that on the other side, um, they keep time differently, they review things differently, or they expect you to somehow understand that, or do you take this as... You know, this was a test, and you had to ferret it out before you could possibly believe. Well, I think there's a complexity here. Um, I think that all the points you made have validity. Um, in my opinion, this was a part of my journey where I'm supposed to go uh, to write about near-death experiences and to touch other people, to give them hope. I believe that this was an opportunity for me to prepare for a new journey in life. And the first step was to develop faith. 
Now, in terms of time, yes, um, a lot of people who have near-death experiences say from their own experience and the other side that time is relative. They also say uh, that people who are deceased and many other types of spiritual beings do influence our side, usually in subtle ways, but on rare occasion more overt, observable ways. Okay. Tough questions, I guess. Get that out of the way first, if we may. <laughs> uh, you know, recently there's been a good deal of controversy about NDEs. Eben Alexander has been, for all intent and purposes, crucified by a number of different articles, including that in Esquire magazine, held out to be a hoax. We have the young man that visited heaven who stepped forward and said, I made it all up, and, and you know, and, and on and on. So... There, there is a progression of spirituality and in religion in history, one that you know is often full of tragedy, falseness, pretense, ritual, and fantasy. Freud said that religion is a sugar-coated neurotic crutch. Lang pointed out that mankind has killed more than a hundred million of his own kind in the name of religion. Today we have fatwas, jihadists, and all sorts of other religious sects that more than half the world condemns as barbaric. Yet these same people have NDEs. They report seeing Muhammad. With cultural differences in NDEs, why should we think of them as anything different than that of a psychological event brought about as a coping mechanism for for perhaps a true near-death kind of experience or a psychological need like your, your inmate? Right, that's an excellent question. I think that lies at the heart of the matter. First, I want to say that near-death experiences are similar to religions in some aspects, but very different than religions in other aspects. Religions, there are a set of rituals and rites and orthodox beliefs that you have to believe, believe that this is the way to understand God and their man-made institutions. All those are absent in near-death experiences. Um, basically, in near-death experiences are first-hand accounts of what people see when they die, and most of these accounts are verifiable as death. Sometimes they include mystical healings when the people return, either of cancer or whatever had ailed them to die in the first place. But you said something very interesting to me. You said that near-death experiences are relative, culturally, and I would argue that they're not. If you look at some of the research, especially from the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, where they have about 4,000 anonymous accounts, where they ask anonymous questions, based on that large sample, they find that the underlying element of the NDEs are the same. Now, the what? I'm sorry, I didn't get that. The underlying element is the common denominator? The common denominators of a near-death experience are the same. The superficial elements of a near-death experience are relative and culturally laden. But the underlying elements that are more important and more central to an NDE are the same. And when you look at the numbers, they're astounding. You can't get three people in a room to agree on religious beliefs. 
but surveys United States, Europe, Australia, United States, of course, that's a very Western bias, show that anywhere from 3 to 7% of the population have some near-death experience, whether it's a brief out-of-body experience or something deeper. Now, if we take the average of 5%, that's 15 million people in the United States. Now, if you have 15 million people saying the same thing, that means something. When you can't get three people together to agree on religion. So if you were a jury and said, well, I saw somebody do this, if you had two or three people say, I saw it, the jury may convict but say, well, circumstantial, not enough evidence. But if you have 15 million people saying, yeah, I saw that person steal that television out of the store or whatever, you know, the jury's going to convict because they're going to say this is the truth. It happened. So why are we saying this about near-death experience? We, we have a hard break coming up. When we come back, I want to flesh this out more. But you could sure. you could very well look at that and say, but that makes the point because the common denominator is there is no judgment. Um, everything is good. You're saved. You you know, you're blessed. And, and of course, Christians rail on that. We're, we're Indeed, we're going to show a, a film during the break. And uh, it's a theologian, Dick Hunt, and he basically is uh, pointing out how these common denominators could be the great deceiver because they oppose the biblical literature where there is judgment, etc. We'll take that all up after the break. We're speaking with Dr. Roy Hill about his work and book, Psychology and the Near-Death Experience. It's a great read, full of stories, and, and, you know, it's one, if you're interested in this kind of thing, you're going to love it. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room today examining the question, is it possible that near-death experiences are demonic deceptions? Uh, Check it out in the chat room. If you're not already there, you can't get there now. Remember, you can come back later. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Galaxy. 
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Roy Hill about his work and book, Psychology and the Near-Death Experience. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. By now you know, music psychology is a new hobby of mine, and it has practical relevance in the literature, including investigations of human aptitudes, social behavior, creativity, personality, intelligence, and on and on. So, all right, we just played some of Send Your Love by Sting. So please tell us, why is this music important to you, Dr. Hill? And how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, Eldon, I believe that we everything that we do is integrated through a tapestry throughout time and space. You are a thread in the tapestry just like Every one of your listeners is a thread in the tapestry, and you're interconnected with every other thread. Yes, it's just one thread out of trillions or whatever, but if you take that thread away, the tapestry is incomplete. And one touch on the tapestry affects all the threads around it beyond our sight, not only through space but through time. And so if you love other people, it's going to affect people throughout the tapestry far beyond your knowledge. And so, it's going so the lyrics to have some meaning to you then? Yeah, yeah. So the song, Send Your Love in the Future, means that what we do now in love will impact not only our future, but the future of others. I don't want to pick on you, Doc, but uh, there's no religion but sex and music. There's no religion but well, sound and dancing. Well, that part's a little, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Not, not, not every part of the lyric resonates with me, but uh, I do like the uh, lyrics that say that uh, what we do now affects us in the future. Well, I couldn't give you a free ride, you know. Yeah, sure, sure, okay. I understand. <laughs> All right, listen, we, we showed a video during the break, and... Uh, you know, it offered the possibility that NDEs are the devil's lies. And you brought this up earlier. Your Christian friends, they told you it was okay. Uh, theologian Dave Hunt is featured in this video, and he says there are four lies that the serpent told Eve in the garden. And they are that God is not personal, he's a force, and that there is no death, that you can become like God, and finally, the tree of knowledge. There's no moral judgment. You only need to recognize who you are 
and the burden of error or sin is lifted from you no matter what you've done. In other words, you're here just to learn and remember who you are. What say you to this argument, Dr. Hill? This had to be something very close to what your friends, your Christian friends, were saying to you. Sure, sure. And I understand that point of view. I was raised Baptist, and I certainly was indoctrinated with that particular point of view. Mm-hmm. I've since moderated that view. Um, on the other hand, I think the criticism of the NDE is a little bit misinformed. Basically, yes, we are here to learn, but our level of progression depends on how much we learn and how much we're open. And we all have different levels of light uh, based on the choices we make and who we are. And I would like to make an analogy of, instead of thinking of sinfulness in terms of some big black monster that you have to fight, I would like to think of it more in terms of development. Does a parent love his or her teenage child more than the toddler? Even though the toddler reaches for the frosted cupcake and smears it all over its face, a good parent wouldn't necessarily become angry at that uh, because they understand that the toddler doesn't know better. The toddler hasn't learned enough or grown enough to realize you don't smash the cupcake in your face or act impulsively. You would expect more, of course, from the teenager. But the love is the same. And that's a good analogy what people have near-death experiences say about God's love for us. You know, Christians say that God has the perfect love, but maybe they're in, in anthropomorphizing God's love. What is perfect love? I asked a young woman who had this very argument with me, said that God judges and sends people to hell. I said, would you send your worst enemy to hell? She said, no. I said, well, why not? Is it because you love too much? She kind of half nodded, and I said, well, think of a God with perfect love. Would God send the majority of humanity to be tortured endlessly, trillions upon trillions of years, because they didn't believe a certain way in this life? And she looked at me and kind of walked off. She didn't have an answer for that. So this idea of a wrathful, judgmental God is not my view or the view of near-death experiences. Okay, but you've made a stark contrast here. One is that um, the God of the Baptist that you, you know, religion that you were raised in. Um, you're saved by the grace of God. Okay. Um, and, and the other is there is no judgment whatsoever. And But there are several reports of people who have near-death experiences, and they're not positive. They're negative ones. Right. They visit hell where they find Hitler, Mussolini, and so on. How do you integrate that? That's a good question, and I devote quite a bit of that in my book, because people do have hellish experiences, (laughs) and even people who have positive experiences will often see that there is a hellish realm. And basically, when we have a life review up in heaven, the only person who's judging is ourselves. So there is a judgment, and certainly there's consequences I I don't want to cut you off, but I have to ask you something. I'm sorry. Sure. Your NDE reports talk about life review yeah that's where you're getting that okay i just want to make that clear that everybody understands well, I mean, it. yeah exactly i'm kind of going on a, on a little bit of side point to, able to be 
better able to answer your question about health is that we judge ourselves and there's consequences to our actions. And then when we live life a certain way, when we go up there, it's not that there's judgment in terms of wrath or punishment, but there is judgment in the sense that we are living the consequences of who we are, who we decided to become through our own free will. There are people, and I've worked with them in prison, true psychopaths, okay, who lack, fully lack the capacity for empathy, for kindness, for goodness. Sure. They are sadistic. They, in, they thumb their nose at God and all that is good. And those are, tend to be the type of people who have hellish experiences. And what people of near-death experiences say is that these people go there because they choose to go there, because they completely reject goodness and God and all that the spiritual realm of God represents. It's their choice. What's interesting, okay. people like George... Okay. No, I'm just going to say, and I, 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 you worked as a psychologist within a prison system, okay? Yeah. I've worked with inmates as well. You are a psychologist, so now I'm going to turn you to the psychology of this, because that's the title of your book. Correct. You have just made a case for what uh, Dick Schwab, uh, Dr. Dick Schwab, a neurologist who's on our show not too long ago, uh, but but a very, you know, I mean, one of the leading, one of the, fam- the more famous in the world. He, he flatly stated that NDEs were brain events, pure and simple. Not only that, he further explained how these sort of religious experiences can be triggered by stimulating different areas of the brain and how they're predisposed by our psychological understanding or needs. Now, if that's the instance, what you're saying, and and correct me if I'm wrong, what you're saying is, okay, look, we have this uh, psychopath, and this psychopath goes to hell. Would that, I mean, Freud would say, hey, you know, um, this experience is designed to correct this person's thinking about right and wrong, maybe terrify him into changing behavior. I mean, in other words, what I'm saying, could you not lay out a tapestry of psychology underlying why these people are having the kinds of NDEs they have, including the fact that. I'm not going to be judged. I'm going to be forgiven. I'm okay. I'm going to be saved. I may have to do it all over again to learn something new, but I'm okay. Sure. I understand the argument that you're making. And certainly if one's mental state is that of negativity, would they not have a negative NDE? or the wishful thinking to the existential anxiety that comes from out of fear of death, would that not lead to experiences that have a very positive element to it? Right. So I understand your question, although, you know, the crux of it lies on what is an NDE. Is it a matter of the brain, or is it a true spiritual experience, So this is the ultimate question, which Evan Alexander is being criticized for as a neurologist. So how do you differentiate that? I would say that the hard science 
is lacking in both areas. However, I can make a case, an indirect scientific case, akin to the social sciences where you can measure things indirectly for the NDE. So if you would like, I could discuss that. Well, I'm happy to have you make a case that would, for all intent and purposes, uh, give us reason to believe that all these stories are more than an antidote. Now, you you heard the setup. I I absolutely believe that it is our subjective experiences that are the doorway to our understanding spiritual reality. I, I'm convinced yeah. that there is no science that that it proves spirituality, and there is no science that disproves it. Okay, so um, okay. you know, we are left with our experiences, but we all have different experiences, and, you know, it, it becomes incumbent upon us to test the veracity of those experiences. You know, my background was in lie detection. I spent years and years conducting lie detection examinations. I cannot tell you about the number of people that sat across from me looking very serious and, you know, tears flowing from their eyes, so sincere and da-da-da, that were just liars. You know, they were they, they right, were sociopaths, right. psychopaths, okay? So I I want to believe this. And, and if you have a way of explaining it so that we can ferret that out, oh, please do so. Well, I can, I can tell you, first of all, you, um, the case against the NDE and where it's weak, and then I can give you some indirect evidence that the NDEs may be real, and that's probably the best I can do. Yeah, let's, let's go with the evidence for the reality of NDEs. Okay. Um, I think one is, if you're going to make a case for validity, the first thing you need to do is establish reliability. At the beginning of our session today, we talked about the thousands, probably millions, but at least maybe ten or 20,000 documented NDEs that have the same elements. Right. And when I talk about elements, it doesn't mean that whether somebody sees Jesus or not. But rather, there are certain senses of timelessness, of interconnection uh, with everything, the universe, of the fabric of the universe being based on love, of things like tunnel experiences or meeting certain spiritual beings of light, that the other side is made of energy, and so on and so on. I can go on and list probably 20 other elements that are the same across these millions of NDEs, including speaking through telepathy, um, that there's life reviews, and on and on and on. So not everybody has all these elements, but all these people that have them have portions of these elements that repeat, repeat. So a Native American, for instance, he went on a bus, and he saw elders having a peyote ceremony. But when he touched the bus, he felt the interconnection and all those things I talked about. A Catholic, for him, he saw Jesus. Okay? Very different, superficially. But when he touched the hand of Jesus, he felt all the same elements that I was talking about. Same as the native guy. All right, so that's number one. Two, 
near-death experiences, you have very complex experiences. And people, when they meet deceased beings, are all deceased. Never have I read a near-death experience where somebody's met somebody alive, which you would expect in a hallucination. You would think it would be a random assortment of people. The information they come back with is more than just stories of lights and tunnels, but they come back with very complex information, very complex, deep theological discussions with spiritual beings on the other side, okay? And it transforms them when they come back. Hallucinations do not transform people. The psychologist, I can tell you that schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and all the other psychotic-related disorders do not help people. They do not transform people for the better. Right. And so... Here's the, here's the crux. It is true, and they did studies with the brain of mice, for instance, that certain electrical, neuroelectrical activity occurs after clinical death. And you can see that in human beings as well. The neurologists are correct in that. But here's the thing. Though that neuroactivity becomes very rapidly disorganized, and it only lasts for a period of seconds. So how can such a short, erratic experience explain the complexity and length and deepness of these near-death experiences? If anything, if they remember anything, what they would remember is something very bizarre, disjointed, and short. But that's not what's being reported at all. Okay, here's another line about the evidence. People who've been blind from birth, okay, Mm -hmm. um, they cannot describe visual stimuli because they have no common point of reference to describe it. But people blind from birth who have near-death experiences can describe visual stimuli after their near-death experience. That's another line of evidence. Here's another, uh, a Dutch cardiologist did um, a study about near-death experiences where he had a group of uh, people who died from a cardiac arrest who had a near-death experience, another group that they died from cardiac arrest and didn't, and a control group was from people out in the community. And what he found was that only the people who reported near-death experience and had an out-of-body experience accurately were able to describe the medical procedures used to resuscitate them. Okay? Who the was other that? two groups could not. Uh, Dr. Pin Van Lommel. He's a Thank Dutch you. cardiologist. Go on. I didn't mean yeah. to interrupt you, but that's you know, obviously I want to get a hold of that and read that study. Please continue. Yeah, yeah I, can, I can go ahead and, and, and email that to you. Would you? Um, I'd love it. Yeah. Okay. So, these are these are some of the these are some of the indirect evidence. Now, am I so bold, uh, somebody who's trained in science, to say this is proof? I'm not so bold because how can you measure a consciousness? How can you measure soul? How can you measure the afterlife? The best you can do is these kind of studies that I've been telling you about. They give direct indirect evidence, but indirect as it is and non-conclusive as it is, I would say it's stronger than the evidence on the other side. 
people when you put it together, you've got a really good circumstantial case, and a lot of people go to prison over nothing more than circumstantial evidence. The dots are all right. there. That's what you're saying. Well, okay, look. And, and, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, no, I, I didn't want to saying, interrupt. Go ahead. Uh, you know, I was just saying on the other side, people are saying this is just brain activity. They say this is evolution. Well, what what's the evolutionary advantage of a brain a person having a positive experience when they're dying how does that help the species it, just well, make sense. it actually does if you look at it i mean and i don't want to go down that route because i mean we have had uh, you know a number of experts on the show that have talked about everything from rem intrusion uh peer-reviewed papers to you know the, the evolutionary mm-hmm. psychologist who points out that with the inevitability of death, it's necessary for the process, Darwinian process, to give us a hope, or we don't Why? look oh, forward and live to, to to try to to try to work to live. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I think you, you made a really good case, and we're running short on time here. And, and your sure. book, your book is really a cut above the NDE books I've read, and I've read I've read I think almost all of them out there. Uh, so I want to compliment you on your book. But you spend a lot of time on the book on the idea of soul, and I really want to get there, and we've only got a couple of a minutes. So, well, actually, I've got about one minute. Flesh out real quick what you learned about the soul. Well, soul is our consciousness. So if you want to get in touch with the soul, uh, it's the I am in you. And here we go with neurological the same argument way made before, the assumption is in science that our consciousness is derived from the brain. And I think through quantum physics, we could see that maybe it's the other way around. So, but um, our soul is our consciousness that I am part of who we are. All right. In a nutshell. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, I'm sorry, because... You know, that is a part of your book that I really enjoyed very, very much, and you spent a lot of time on it. And I think, uh, like I say, um, if you're spiritually oriented, you're going to want to read Psychology and the Near-Death Experience. Tell us this, Doc, in a half a minute or so, how can our readers learn more about you, uh, obtain copies of your books? Uh, you know, um, if you've got a blog, a website, share all that now, please. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, so you're right in saying my book is a bit different. Um, it's more of an analytical approach where I use lots and lots of um, anonymous indie accounts and people I've interviewed as well. So if people are really interested in getting into the meat of it, uh, this book's for you. Um, so you can buy the book on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback version, Apple iTunes, as well as BarnesandNobles.com. Uh, on my website, I have some cool quotes there, um, events that I'm going to or have been to. And that's near death, spelled near death, E-X-P-P-S-Y.com. That's near death, E-X-P-P-S-Y.com. Okay, thank you, sir. Again, the name of the book, Psychology and the Near-Death Experience, Searching for God by Roy L. Hill. Dr. Royal Hill, Saida, yeah. All right. Thank you, Dr. Hill, for your willingness to share it with us, uh, your well, work you. and your book. Right. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. 
I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them come in as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.